I, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and get to open up God's Word to God's people. Uh, so when you're trying to teach, though, from an entire book of the Bible, uh, it's something of a tricky, uh, tricky thing. It's, at least it is for me. Uh, you know, if you try to zero in on one part, you can kind of miss the forest for the trees. But if you just try to stay up at the high level, you can you can miss a lot of the a lot of the detail. Uh, thankfully, though, I think Timothy, First Timothy, is a book that ha- both has an overarching, coherent theme, and actually that theme is is addressed in a single verse. So we're going to kind of build it around uh, a single verse this morning. So turn with me to uh, chapter three, verse fifteen. I'm going to be bouncing around a lot, uh, and so hopefully you'll be able to follow along uh, on the on the screen, so you don't get. Uh, tired of turning pages, but uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Here, Paul says that his instructions to Timothy were written so that he would know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the church, Paul says, is the pillar and the support of the truth in the world. Uh, You want to find truth? Go to the church. That's where truth is found. The world doesn't like this, this message, though, right? They say, you know, what, who are you to say that, that church is only found, the only place you can find truth? That's kind of arrogant, right? Uh, there's truth everywhere. You don't have any, any sort of monopoly on the truth, you Christians. You see, we're all like blind men trying to describe an elephant, this is a Buddhist parable that it pictures several blind men surrounding an elephant they encounter for the first time, and they're all grabbing onto a different part. One is grabbing onto its ear, one grabbing onto its foot, maybe one on, the, on the, its, its trunk. And then they all try to describe what is this thing that they're, they're holding onto. And not surprisingly, they get you know, very different descriptions of it. And the point of the parable is what's true for you it might be true, but it's also maybe something different is true uh, for me. And a lot of people talk this way now. This, this way of talking about truth is, I think, more prevalent now than ever before. Uh, people speak of my truth and your truth. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, my truth, what is that? That's a truth that can't really be challenged. Because my truth is my truth. How dare you say something about my truth? You can have your own truth. Uh, Others essentially reject the idea of truth out of hand. Everything is subjective. One man's truth is another man's lie. One man's news is another man's fake news, right? Uh, This is not a new idea. Uh, In John chapter 18... We see that when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate said, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? The world says, amen, what is truth? Uh, But Paul stands against that kind of thinking in this letter. Uh, There is such a thing as truth. There is truth with a capital T. Uh, There is absolute truth. And the church 
is the place where that truth is found. But that is not the, the only place that Paul goes with it. The church is the pillar of the truth and holding up the truth, but the fact that that's true of the church means something. It means something for how Christians should behave as members of the church. The truth is going to lead to holy living in the church, period. True doctrine will lead to right behavior. Holding these two things together, doctrine and behavior, that's what this letter really is all about. So the book of 1 Timothy is not a theological treatise. It's not the book of Romans. It's not a, it's, Paul's not taking a lot of time to expound on a lot of these things. Uh, but he does take the opportunity to remind Timothy of the truths of the gospel, which we'll see a little later. But the letter really isn't mainly about that. Uh, it's mainly about this connection between truth and action, between right theology and right practice. And because of that, there's a contrast throughout the book as well between the dual connections of truth and right conduct and falsehood and bad conduct. So Paul is telling Timothy, you need to oppose these false teachers. You need to avoid and oppose the sinful behavior that has resulted from their false teaching as well. Stick firm to the truth, Timothy, and insist on behavior in the church that matches the truth. So we're going to go to the first touch on the importance of true doctrine. So because the church is the pillar of truth in the world, throughout the letter, Paul holds out true doctrine as fundamentally important for the church. In chapter 1, he identifies a number of activities that are contrary to sound teaching. Sound teaching is contrasted with the strange doctrines that the false teachers have brought in. When we say that someone is of sound mind and body, what do we say? What do we mean by that? We mean that they're healthy, right? They're, there's nothing wrong with them. They're good. Uh, that's what sound teaching is like. It's healthy. It's good for you. There's nothing wrong with it. Contrast that with bad teaching, these strange doctrines. Uh, bad doctrine is diseased. It's fundamentally off. There's something wrong with it. Uh, in chapter 4, Paul says that by instructing the church in these things, Timothy would be a good servant of Christ, being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So sound doctrine not only is good, but it has a nourishing effect on you. It's good for you. Now, because sound doctrine is that important, the whole letter is written as a reaffirmation of the charge that Timothy has received to preach true doctrine. Paul reminds Timothy in chapter 1 that he has been entrusted with this charge. He's been entrusted with the charge of keeping to true, sound doctrine, fighting the good fight, and keeping faith in a good conscience. As a result, he says in chapter 4, he expects Timothy to prescribe or command these things. Now, how does that sound to you? When I say some, some, somebody might command you to do something, order you to do something. How does that land on you? Not, most of us don't like that. We don't like being told what to do. Who are you? 
but Paul is telling Timothy just that. Command these things in the church. This is your duty. You are to command these things, not just recommend them. This is just good possibility for you to follow. No, command these things. And the implication there, obviously, is the people are to obey that. Again, in chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy to teach and preach these principles. And he closes his letter by telling him to guard what had been entrusted to him. Guard the truth. There's something coming against it. Guard true doctrine. So what is Timothy to guard and to teach? Well, he's to teach the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the doctrine that conforms with godliness. So that's the same thing he says in chapter 1. Sound doctrine accords with or agrees with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So the way he talks about these things, it obviously assumes some level of familiarity with what he's talking about. Right? If he says sound doctrine, sound teaching. He's not going into great depth in what these things are. But Timothy has spent years with Paul. He knows what these things are. There's, these are shorthand references to, you know, all the things that I've already taught you and you've heard me teaching? Teach that. Uh, because there's that level of familiarity, he uses these shorthand terms like sound teaching, sound doctrine. Uh, but nevertheless, he doesn't miss the opportunity in this letter to, to remind him of some of these truths. In chapter 1, Paul testifies that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what a great, succinct little summary of the gospel. Jesus, the God-man, came into the world. Why? To save people that needed to be saved because they're sinners. He gets a little bit more specific in chapter 2. He says that the gospel of Christ is the testimony given at the proper time. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In chapter 3, Paul says that the gospel is the great mystery of godliness, that Jesus was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the gospel that Paul and Timothy have received, and this is the gospel that he expects you're going to go teach. So Paul also says that Timothy is to guard and teach the Bible. He's to devote himself, he says, to reading Scripture, exhorting, and teaching the Scriptures. By doing so, he would save both himself and his hearers. Well, in his second letter to Timothy, he explains a little bit more about the reasons for this. Why is Timothy to, to teach Scripture? Well, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And more literally, it says that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. That's what the words mean. So when we read the Bible, we are reading the very words of God himself. When we hear the scriptures, we are hearing the voice of God breathed out through the, the authors that he inspired to write these things. So as the word of God, the Bible has a powerful effect. It brings salvation. Not just, notice, not just for the unbeliever. Timothy's a believer. 
He says, it's going to bring salvation both for you and for your hearers. So it has this preserving effect, not just for initial salvation, but ultimate salvation. That's what we're talking about. So a preacher, they can get up here, right, and be eloquent. They can be entertaining. They can be inspiring. And a lot of preachers are. A lot of preachers draw people to themselves by the force of their personality. Uh, but if preacher isn't bringing the word of God, he does not belong in the pulpit, period. So the second thing T- Timothy does throughout this letter is to t- connect true doctrine to godly behavior. At the outset, he says the aim of his charge is to preach the gospel uh, so that there is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he expects that his teaching his preaching is going to result in behavior among the people that matches up with the truth. True doctrine results in a change of heart. True doctrine results in a change of conscience, and it, that is going to look like love on the outside among God's people. Now, again here, Paul is assuming, I think, a high level of familiarity about the concept of godly living. There's not a great in-depth you know, treatment of what this means at the, in the broadest sense. Uh, but there's no moral ambiguity either. There's no sense of, well, here's true doctrine. I hope you figure out how to apply this. No, he's saying true doctrine. And you know what? This is exactly what it looks like in the lives of various people. So he doesn't leave it in the abstract. He expects Timothy to command the people about some specific things. And so he does that in addressing a bunch of different people in the church. He says, the men should be taught to pray, lifting holy hands without wrath or dissension. The women should be taught to adorn themselves properly with modesty and discretion, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing but with what is proper for women who claim godliness, with good works. There are standards for church leaders as well. An elder must be above reproach, a one-woman man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not a fighter, but general, peaceable, free from the love of money, and he must manage his own household well. A deacon must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain. He must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He also must be tested as beyond reproach, a one-woman man, managing his own children and his household well. Deacons' wives must be dignified, not gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. The children and grandchildren of widows are to learn to practice godliness to their own family, and to make some return to their parents by supporting those widows. And widows themselves are to fix their hope on God and continue in prayers night and day. The rich in the present age are to be, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus store up for themselves treasure for the future and take hold of that which is life indeed. He says money's not life. Money's not life. 
and I, I hesitate to say this too strongly because we live in a different culture, but I think Paul would look at us and say, you're all rich. You're all rich according to you know, the, the standards that he's setting out. Do good, be humble, be generous with your things. Set your hope on God. And all people are, are instructed to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So Paul says, if we have food and covering, we should be content. I think that's all of us, right? Uh, and when most of us hear a message, though, about contentment, we think, sure, yeah, yeah. If I, only, yeah, if I, if I have this, pretty sure I'll be content. Yeah, or if this thing happens for me, I'll definitely be content with that. And that's, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, and if we're honest, I think we would rather be the rich person and to have to live with the rich person obligations of being generous rather than being content. But this message of contentment is for everyone. If we have only the bare necessities, Paul is saying, God is calling us to be content with that. Because we know that a godly life coupled with contentment brings great joy. It brings great gain. So he has also a number of instructions for Timothy himself. He tells Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness, because it's profitable in every way, and that it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The pastor is to be a godly, disciplined man. That's what a pastor should look like. He tells Timothy to show himself to be an example for those who believe in his speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. The pastor should be able to say, as Paul does, follow my example. You want to see how to live the Christian life? Follow me. Now, that's a heavy thing, but that's what Paul expects. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, in God's school, the teachers must be masters of the art of holiness. If we teach one thing by our lips and another by our lives, those who listen to us will say, physician, heal thyself. Paul also says to flee from the love of money and instead to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The pastor is to be a man with his priorities in order. Is to be a man that is pursuing this kind of life that reflects true doctrine. There's another thread, though, that runs throughout Paul's letter. And it's the contrast. It's contrast between the dynamic of right doctrine leads to right living and bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. False doctrine will lead to ungodliness. The backdrop here is that false teachers had come in and they were encouraging people to engage in this sort of what he calls myths and endless speculation uh, and just genealogies, which he says give rise to speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. People aren't being built up by this teaching. It's just encouraging them to speculate in some way about the, about the law. Paul calls these vain discussions, though, even though they're teaching the Old Testament. These are Bible teachers. 
So just because somebody gets up and, and says, this thing is from the Bible, doesn't mean it's actually from the Bible. We have to discern what's true and what's not. See, despite their confident assertions about the law, the false teachers did not really understand it. In chapter 4, he describes these men as lying hypocrites. They would forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. He describes the false teaching as worldly fables fit only for old women. It's a bunch of old wives' tales. Uh, he equates the, the false teaching with worldly and empty chatter, even though it's falsely called knowledge. There's some sense in which this, these ideas, they look wise. They look like there's something that you should figure out on the outside. It looks like this is knowledge to be gained, but he says it's empty. It results in nothing good. In fact, their teaching has a devastating impact on the church. Paul says that the teaching, which is actually the doctrine of demons and deceitful spirits, it's going to sear the consciences of those who devote themselves to that teaching. And therefore, it will cause those people to depart from the faith. By rejecting the gospel in favor of these teachings, people have made shipwreck of their faith and have become blasphemers. And by professing this knowledge, this new knowledge, people have swerved from the faith. They're over here. Faith is over there. They don't even know it. Now, the other thing that it produces is outward evidence, this envy, strife, abusive language, friction. Uh, and he calls the people among men of depraved mind who are deprived of the truth. In some way, this is, there's an element of greed here. There's an element of, by doing this, this, this kind of uh, speculation, they think that achieving some level of godliness is going to be gain for them, worldly gain. So Paul warns about the impact that believing these lies can have on the lives of specific groups again. So for widows, it might look like self-indulgence instead of a life that's devoted to God. Paul says, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Well, I'm just living my life. Just living my life the way I want. Paul says, you're dead. You're dead and you don't even know it. For relatives of widows, it might be looked like refusing to provide for them, allowing the church to do it. Paul says the one who doesn't provide for his own, especially for those of his household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It might look like wanting to be rich. Paul says that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich. We can criticize the rich, those people out there. What about the, those who want to be rich? It's the famous verse, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
This is a sin that everyone can engage in by just wanting it. And even elders might fall into this sin. Paul says that those elders who continue in sin must be rebuked in the presence of all so that everybody else will fear. They'll be fearful of sinning. So what does all this mean for us? Especially those of us who aren't pastors. This is a book from one pastor to another. And we're sort of eavesdropping in. Uh, so how, how can we be expected to apply these teachings to our lives? I see at least four implications for us. The first implication, really simply, there is such a thing as true doctrine. There is such a thing as false doctrine. And it's our responsibility to know the difference. It's our responsibility as Christians to be able to tell the truth from a lie. How do we know it? Well, first, we know it by listening to and learning from godly elders. It's the particular responsibility of elders to know, teach, and guard correct doctrine in the church. The standards for elders that Paul lays down are for the benefit of the church. The church benefits from the elders, and so the, church, the elders must be held to that standard. That's what your leaders should look like. The second way we know the difference between false and true doctrine is by knowing the Bible. True doctrine is consistent with the gospel. True doctrine is in the Bible. Because the, ch the church is the pillar and support of the, church, of the truth in the world, we must be a people of the word. Otherwise, where will people go? Where will people go to find the truth? Where the church abandons the Bible, the authority of the Bible, they abandon their position as the pillar and support of the truth. Second implication I see is that right doctrine must be accompanied by right conduct. Part and parcel of being people that cherish the word is being people that obey the word. Sometimes, in, in my circles at least, we like to camp out on that first part. We like to camp out on truth and talk about truth, but applying that truth, obeying that truth, we might not spend as much time thinking about that. But our lives, our behavior, our conduct inside, outside the church, it has to reflect the true doctrine that we believe. So again, Paul's instructions about how we conduct ourselves apply to us today. We're to live lives of love, prayer, submission to godly leaders, modesty, purity, faith, righteousness, godliness, gentleness, generosity, and contentment. A third implication is that the church and its leaders need to spur people on to conduct that matches up with this. This is what Paul is doing. This is what Tim, Paul is telling Timothy to do. Within the church, we need to be wise enough to be able to know what is good conduct, what's bad conduct, what's inconsistent, what's consistent with sound doctrine, and we need to be bold enough to call each other out. We need to be bold enough to say, you know what, that's not right. 
bold enough to say, you know what we should be doing? This, because it is consistent with right doctrine. And church leaders need to know their people for this to happen. They need to know what sins they struggle with. They need to be open enough to understand that. They need to teach and command the people to live in a way that honors God. And the fourth implication is the most basic, I think, that what we believe will drive how we live. Has un- ungodliness become rooted in the church in some way? That's because we have believed a lie. As Paul recognizes, there's a spiritual force of evil behind these things. It's not neutral. This is the doctrine of demons. Yes, sinful behavior in the church needs to be addressed, needs to be stopped. But the lie behind it needs to be addressed as well. When we sin, we're believing something else. The good news, though, is that the opposite is true as well. Do you want to be godly? Do you want your church to be godly? Do you want to obey? You have to believe the truth. Jesus said in John 8, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. Free from the power of sin. Free to obey God in the right way. With a willing heart instead of grudgingly. When you hear a command, you say, yes. Instead of, hmm, I guess I'll listen to that, maybe. Free to joyfully embrace what God has given you instead of always pining for something more. That just a little more, just something else, that's going to make me happy. But the ultimate truth is what God has revealed in the gospel. And just looking at how that, the gospel is talked about in this book, it's pretty amazing. Paul says, we are sinners in desperate need of salvation. Jesus, the God-man who was revealed in the flesh, came into this world to save sinners. He came as the one mediator between God and man, the one person who could step between sinful man and a holy God. He did that by giving himself as a ransom for all by dying on the cross, in our place, for our sins. The perfection of Jesus' sacrifice was vindicated by the Spirit when he rose again from the dead and was taken up in glory. And now, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are proclaimed throughout the world, and people believe it unto salvation. Praise God, when that good news is believed, the great mystery of godliness is revealed as people that are formerly in sin step into new patterns of obedience and live their lives to the glory of God. I think even this morning, some of you might be realizing, you know what, I have believed a lie in some way. It might be the lie that you have, you have something to offer up to God apart from Christ. You're a good person. I'm a good person. Well, God might be graciously calling you to believe the truth. 
that you're a sinner in need of salvation. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You might have believed the lie that the way you're living doesn't really matter. I believe Jesus. I'm saved. I believe in him. But your life doesn't look anything like what Paul is setting out here. Even the demons believe, James says, and shudder in terror. That kind of belief is empty. Belief that doesn't match up, your, where your conduct doesn't match up with what you profess. Well, God may be graciously calling you to believe the truth. That your life does matter. Your, how you live your life does matter. You may be, need to be set free from your love of money, or sex, or comfort. And the Bible says that if Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. What a glorious thing, right? Well, pray with me. And Father, I, uh, I thank you so much that you did send your son Jesus to save sinners. I thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel that we find in your Bible. Thank you that you've given us, you've revealed yourself to us through the scriptures. And I thank you that you've given us godly men and godly women to, to be examples of how to live in light of those truths. And I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted of sin and what we're, where we're believing a lie, Lord. Um, and may our lives reflect the truth, the glorious truth of the fact that we've been set free from sin. If we are in Christ, we have been set free to live lives that honor you and that look like what we believe. So we thank you. We praise you. We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.